This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card for this week is Jim Whalewander, second baseman for the Detroit Tigers, number 106. Jim Whalewander. That is a fun name to say, and I'm sure that we are saying it correctly as we double-checked that before we started. But David, we'll learn more about Jim in a minute. Looks like we have one more bit of follow-up having to do with double Zs. I think that this might be a running theme. Maybe every week some, <laughs> a new double Z name will come up that we missed. Jason R. on Facebook, thank you, listener, Jason, suggested Chris Canizaro. Chris Canizaro was a catcher and the first Padres all-star in their franchise history. Chris Canizaro. He also had a son who played in the minors, I believe. So that's a, another good ZZ name. And if you think of any that we have missed, please let us know. Chris Canizaro, all-star, fantastic. So thank you for that. And let's get now to our card for this week with Jim Whalewander. And Jim was a suggestion from a listener. Listener Damon on Facebook said, as a lifelong Tiger fan, his suggestion, and he said, take it or leave it. So we're going to take it. <laughs> he said he was eight in 1988, as was I. And he thought Jim Whalewander was the coolest name. He said he didn't know much about Jim Whalewander. Neither did I. I vaguely recognized this card. But I am so grateful that Damon suggested this. He, <laughs> Damon also <laughs> followed up and said that he would play wiffle ball in the backyard and pretend to be different players in the 87 Tigers lineup. And he distinctly remembered going to bat as Jim Whalewander, which is just another example that we have the best listeners. <laughs> 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 Jim Whalewander, super fan, Damon. Uh, but he also said he didn't know much about Jim, and so he was looking forward to listening to see what we uncovered. But Jim Whalewander has some legit super fans. His Wikipedia is surprisingly detailed, so much so that I questioned some of the validity of this Wikipedia and had to find some independent verification of some of this information. But I am also now a Jim Whalewander super fan. <laughs> That is fantastic. Me too, David. In prepping for today's episode, we found some video from Major League Baseball magazine and a video from 1988. I watched it, had some video of Jim back in the 1988 season and just immediately became part of the fan club. I think he's, he's a fantastic uh, character and a great guy to dig into. So let's start with the card and then we'll get into Jim as a player and as a personality. So starting with the front of 106 and we have this, <laughs> we have, what do you call this pose here, David? It, that face is definitely a side eye emoji. He is giving some serious side eye. He, it's like a one quarter profile, Jim looking slightly off to the side. I think that this has a very good classic card look. You really, with just his head and hat, you wouldn't be able to tell if this was 1988 or 1930. It just has a really good, cool classic look. And there's a blurry background. You can't really tell he, where he's at. Jim looks really young in this picture. Yeah, he looks 16 years old, if that. Uh, t completely clean-shaven, wearing so wearing the the dark navy 
tiger's hat with the orange D on the top. Orange trim and tigers all in orange that kind of match the cap. It does look like a uniform and hat. You know, the hat is too big for his head. All of this looks like he could have been uh, part of the movie crew for Field of Dreams or something like that. So definitely turn of the century era kind of look from Jim here. Let's go to now to the back of the card. And on the back, so this is a rookie card. We've got the Tigers only make a bit of an appearance at the end of 87. Jim is a 5'10", 165-pound second baseman, switch hitter, right-handed thrower, drafted by the Tigers in 1983, which is part of the fun fact we'll get to in a second, and born May 2nd, 1962, Chicago, Illinois, with a home in Harwood Heights, Illinois. Matt, have you ever been to Harwood Heights? I have. I have a a friend of the family who is from Harwood Heights. He lives in Des Plaines now. Really, this whole area of the Chicagoland region, I just think of as that part by O'Hare Airport. It is very close to O'Hare. When I was younger, we used to go to Norwich, which is a neighboring town of Harwood Heights, to go to the Harlem Irving Plaza. And there's a good record store there called Rolling Stones Records. Uh, I think it's still there and may lead into a little bit more about the fun part of Jim Whale Wander. This is a suburb of Chicago, but it's entirely surrounded by the city of Chicago. Before the town was developed, when it was just a you know a small enclave that was within the city limits, the people in Harwood Heights and neighboring Norwich wanted to become part of the city of Chicago, but the city of Chicago said no because they didn't want to pay to develop out to this kind of unincorporated area in the 1940s. Later, those towns developed a mall, they developed some businesses, and the city of Chicago was like, hey, do you want to come join the city of Chicago? We would appreciate your tax base. And Harwood Heights and Norwich declined at that point because they were happily their own thing. So we're left with this hole when you look at the city of Chicago map out by O'Hare Airport between Portage Park. There's just a hole in the map that is two other towns completely enveloped by the city of Chicago. And that's where Jim's from. So I had covered this a few weeks ago in my other podcast that I do for the Chicago Metropolitan Planning Council. But I love this. I love this deep history. People come about- to this to this podcast for uh, Gainesville, Florida, punk music, name drops, Illinois town history, and... <laughs> places where david and matt have knocked on doors <laughs> exactly which this covers all three basically <laughs> and then jim went to maine south high school which encompasses many of the suburbs in that area and jim i knew this fact david jim is not the most famous alum from maine south high school yeah that's uh boris schlappick who was an <laughs> nfl kicker Changed his name to Ian Stone and played soccer for the Chicago Sting in the 1970s, that's, 80s. That's who I was thinking of. Or Dave Butts, who was also mm. included in a 1988 top set, the NFL football card set. He played football at Purdue University. Revisit a previous episode for everything about Purdue University. Dave Butts was the oldest starting player in the NFL when he retired at 38. Also, Jim Whalewander's Tigers teammate, Dave Bergman, who's also in this 1988 set, was in the class of 1971. But I think, Matt, you might be thinking of former First Lady, U.S. Senator, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who was in the first senior class of Maine South High School in 1965. That is who I was thinking of. Uh, Senator Clinton from Park Ridge, one of the towns that 
feeds into Maine South High School. When Jim went to Maine South, he was a multi-sport athlete. He won an Illinois State basketball title in 1979 over Quincy, Illinois. I assume that the team in Quincy is the Quincy Russell Brothers or something <laughs> like that. So I was looking through to see, because so many of these guys are multi-sport athletes who are great at all of the sports. We're thinking of Gary Thurman or guys who played basketball, football. Jim did not feature in any of the box scores during this IHSA tournament. He was a junior when they won the state title, except for the final, he went 0 for 1 shooting. So he was like maybe the last guy on the bench of this basketball team. I expected to find like, you know, Jim Whalewander leading the team in scoring in this run to the title. No, he just, he was on the team. The team didn't make the state tournament in his senior season, but in that 1980 season on that leading score list is Kevin Seitzer, who was from Lincoln, Illinois. And meanwhile, in 1980, Jim was Maine South Athlete of the Year as his team finished third in the state in baseball. So Jim does not get drafted out of high school. He goes to Iowa State in Ames, Iowa, and plays for three years there. He said in his first season as a freshman, he hit 380, and he became kind of a big man on campus. And he said that he leaned into being the big man on campus and had a lot of fun and fell off his sophomore season. However, he did break the Big 8 conference record for stolen bases in a season in 1982 with 46 steals. And that becomes a theme of Jim's career. A lot of speed. As a junior, he hit 388 and had 35 stolen bases. Was all-conference, all-conference tournament, and all-academic in 1983, earning him a spot in the 1983 draft. And that becomes the fun fact from the card that Jim was signed as a ninth-round draft selection with the Detroit Tigers, June 14, 1983, by scout George Bradley. I have no George Bradley information. <laughs> well, me either. <laughs> so we will, we'll move along to those minor leagues. So he starts in Bristol. That's the first line in this card in 1983, playing 73 games that first season. He stole 35 bases and hit 319. He was a team MVP in Bristol. Next season plays pretty well in A-ball at Lakeland. Again, stealing a lot of bases, 47 in 84 and 30 in 1985. Those performances at Lakeland earned him a call-up to Double A Birmingham to close out the 85 season, and he started at Glen Falls for Double A in 86. And this is really the first time on this card where you see him struggling a little bit at the plate. Prior to that, he was over 300 or in the 270 to 280s range. At AA Glen Falls, he only hit 243, still showed some speed, 25 steals, and got promoted coming out of spring training in 87 to the AAA team. He said he was the last guy picked for AAA. Yeah, so he starts at Toledo, plays 59 games there, and... This, I like this note here, David, that he didn't know how long he would stay at AAA, so he never bought a bed. <laughs> yes. In his time in Toledo, I think, is when some of the quirks of Jim Whalewander start coming out in the press. The people of Toledo thought Jim was odd. He had basically an empty apartment. He had a, a TV and some sheets on the ground and a pillow, and he just said, my apartment has carpet so I can sleep on the floor. He used all of his money to buy a car. And in that same apartment, he didn't have any window coverings. The only thing he had was tinfoil. So he used 
foil to cover up the windows of his apartment. He said it was the only thing he had to keep the sun out. Yeah, that's um, quite a home decoration decision. I'm guessing also Jim did not have uh, partners of any kind to kind of tell, tell him that's a bad idea. Yeah, I don't know who was giving Jim advice at this point. However, for his odd behavior off the field, on the field, he did things that managers liked. Toledo played an exhibition game against the Tigers, and Sparky Anderson liked Jim's speed. That earned Jim a call-up in May of 1987, at, at which point he was leading the league in steals, and he ended up that AAA season hitting 271 with 18 steals in 59 games. Now, in previous shows when we've talked about the 1987 Tigers, we've mentioned a couple times they have they have some hitters in this lineup that were older, that were near the tail end of their careers. And so bringing up a young, fast guy does make a lot of sense, I'm guessing. Yes, except as a middle infielder with Lou Whitaker at second base and Alan Trammell at shortstop, <laughs> not a lot of space for Jim Whalewander. <laughs> he said a lot of times he would have to pinch run for, for Daryl Evans or Bill Madlock, but he wasn't getting a lot of looks at shortstop or second base early in his career he said that Lou Whitaker told him you know I'll probably stick around for a couple more years and Lou Whitaker was around well into the 90s and Jim (laughs) was not (laughs) yeah that looks like it's going to hamper Jim's competitiveness and in breaking into a major league lineup I guess the the first game that he was supposed to play in was May 30th and it got rained out But he started out pretty strong. May 31st, he was in the lineup. And as I said before, Dave Bergman went to Maine South High School. Jim knew Dave Bergman's younger brother. So Bergman was a a little bit of a a big brother figure to to Jim when he was in Detroit. And good looking out by Dave Bergman, he told Jim prior to this game, Burt Blylevin's going to be on the mound. If you get behind in the count against him, he's going to throw an inside fastball. So in his first major league at bat, Jim goes down in the count, gets an inside fastball, and pulls it down the right field line for a double. Yeah, nice. Good job, big brother. (laughs) Thanks for looking out. He should have also warned him that if he gets too close to Burt Blylevin, he might set his shoe on fire. (laughs) Yes. Or about Burt Burt Blylevin's love of flatulence. (laughs) But his, his playing time was sparse in the majors. Jim said, when you go 27 days without an at-bat, you're not going to buy a condo. And he would go to the (laughs) locker room to check and make sure his uniform was there every day. And then finally, one day it wasn't. Mm. So he was in the majors from May 30th to August 12th. And he he got sent down for a little while, but then was called back up to close out the season in Detroit. Yeah, with those players ahead of him in the in the pecking order, not a lot of space for him. But he did get plenty of chances as a pinch runner or a defensive replacement and began to develop a cult following. <laughs> this is, I think one of the first things I found when I searched for Jim Whalewander was that there was the Jim Whalewander fan club. <laughs> and immediately I was like, what is this? Like, why do people <laughs> like this guy? And I think it was because he was odd and he said it was maybe because he was naive. There was a guy who wrote a song about him, the Jim Whale Wander Blues by Eastside Billy, which I've not been able to find. So if anybody has a copy of this song, let us know. But he said that the press would ask him, what did you do last night? 
and he would give them an honest answer. And he would say, I went to see a band. He said, nowadays, people give pat answers and, you know, just try to get out of a conversation. And I, th I think sports interviews generally are pretty boring. But somebody would ask him, what'd you do yesterday? And he would give an honest answer and he would be himself. And he said he was just trying to be himself. He wasn't trying to be macho. When he was asked about his goals, he said he wanted to be on the Bozo show again. <laughs> that was that was my goal. I mean, it was, was everyone's so, goal. Everyone's goal. <laughs> he said, but he he said on, again, so yeah. he was on it. Yeah, he was on when he was a kid, but he failed at the grand prize game, so he wanted another chance at it. Oh, man. It's, so I'm seeing the notes that he missed the bag in the third hole. I think there's six, right? Yeah. So that's, that's not very good for someone who is supposed to have the hand-eye coordination to be a professional baseball player. So thinking back to the Don Carmen episode, who Don Carmen kind of looks suspiciously like Jim Whalewander here, very pensive thinking, very very not expressive. I think these two guys have a lot in common. Maybe Jim should have borrowed the crib sheet from from Don Carmen of how to deal with the press. And maybe we'll get into that later on, but I appreciate that he didn't. And <laughs> I think maybe it made him a celebrity that he didn't. Because of his personality, there were a surprising number of interviews with a backup second baseman who's never going to play, who is a pinch runner. You know, there's Washington Post articles, the rookie winning at oddball, Mitch Album, who wrote Tuesdays with Maury and the five people you meet in heaven. He was writing for the Detroit paper at the time and wrote a bunch of articles about <laughs> whales as he is named, um, Jim whale. That's crazy. Yeah. So I like to think that the five, one of the five people you meet in heaven is Jim whale wander. <laughs> well, I'll let you, I'll let you know when I get there, but I think you're on to something, David, because if you get to the 1988 scorecard, right? So the 1988 tops card really does not have much of a fun fact except for his drafting, and then that his first Major League home run was July 26, 1987. We'll talk about that in a second, that home run. But the 1988 scorecard gets really in-depth into actual fun facts about Jim and his personality. Particularly for a guy with very few professional stats, score had surprisingly detailed card backs. I need to go back and find all of my old scorecards because I feel like there's got to be some more interesting ones like this. On this 1988 scorecard, it says, Jim's offbeat approach to life endeared him to his teammates. He became an instant legend in Detroit for his devotion to an obscure punk rock band called the Dead Milkmen and for his <laughs> unusual wardrobe. I've got my whole thrift shop outfit on he said one day three quarters of my clothing are obsolete and one quarter is in working order and that added a quote from sparky anderson let's just say he's different that's boy high praise from sparky there so the dead milkmen are a band that i had heard of but i had not heard in a long time so we're gonna put some of that in right now Big in my backyard So, you know, in 1987 and 1988, 
in Detroit, you know, listening to punk rock is really not that unusual, but it really was in baseball and especially really unusual for a baseball player to say it. Matt, when you were younger, did you get into something for like a minute, but then your entire family just said like, oh, Matt's Mm. the one who likes blank. For example, my brother, when he was younger, picked up playing the drums. Every single gift he got for the next 10 years from anyone in our family was something about drums. And I feel like that happened to Jim here. He was wearing a Dead Milkman shirt in the clubhouse. Somebody asked him about it, and he became the Dead Milkman guy. He was a fan of them, but he was also a guy who was a couple years out of college, and the Dead Milkmen are kind of a like college radio band. They were like that 80s jokey punk music, like, you know, jangly comedy punk. He liked other things. He said he liked the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and R.E.M. Like, who doesn't love R.E.M.? Who was in college in 1983. But it just, it turned into this local notoriety. And he said that people would yell at him like, yeah, you're the dead milkman guy. Then in 1988, kids would see this card. And you might have a 10-year-old kid who's kind of getting into punk rock and sees, oh my gosh, there's a guy who's like me. Or... This, what's this cool punk band or what's this new punk band? Like, let's, I'll go check it out. And you, so you have these people from all over the place who become Jim Whalewander fans. It's very humanizing, but it ended up kind of getting Jim painted as a weirdo. He wore combat boots and a leather jacket with safety pins and, and he'd hang out at punk clubs. But it also got him a chance to meet the dead milkmen and maybe became a mutually beneficial thing or started as a mutually beneficial thing. Because Jim had expressed his fandom of the band, you know, their press reach out to him and invite him to the show the next time that they're in Detroit. So he gets on the guest list. He goes backstage. And in fact, we've got this link we're going to put in the show notes of Jim with the band. If I said one of the guys in here is a Major League Baseball player and the other four are in a punk band, you would not be able to tell which one of them was which. He just looks like he looks like any other the one of the guys in their 20s in this picture. And he said that was part of the appeal was that he got along with them. Once they met, they became friends. He he said they were, you know, he liked their music and they were into like the same dumb TV shows or something like that. So just this like 80s, the birth of irony or something. And the Dead Milkmen are in a weird band like. Punk Rock Girl is a catchy tune, but they have some other songs that are just like improv lyrics and a little bit country-ish and, or just nonsense. They're not R.E.M. They end up being a good luck charm for Jim because the day after that show, Jim invites them to a day game at Tiger Stadium. They show up, and while they left the game early and did not witness the monumental feat, Jim actually hits his first and only home run. And that is the fun fact on here, that he hit his first home run 7-26-1987. Before the game, the Milkmen get to meet Sparky Anderson. Sparky says to one of them who had combat boots, an army shirt, and an earring on, he said, son, don't take no prisoners. And then, (laughs) and Jim took no prisoners that game. Even though the Milkmen left, Jim hits a blast off the upper deck at Tiger Stadium which Al Kaline said was proof that the 1987 ball was juiced. (laughs) He said his parents were also at the game, and 
I don't know if this happened as he hit the home run. They unfurl a banner, the Jim Whalewander fan club banner. And after the game, because Jim's the star of the show, the person who was, I guess, the you know the player of the game got to pick what music is playing. So all the reporters are in there. The dead milkmen are on the stereo. And they ask him where he's going to put the ball. And he said he's going to put it in the glove compartment of his car, which is also where he had the ball from his first major league hit. <laughs> and, and he said when he fills up the car he's gonna have to buy a new car <laughs> i don't know if he ever filled up the car he didn't ever hit a, another major league home run and he was also asked if the milkmen gave him inspiration he said no they just gave me a t-shirt <laughs> yeah he also said that being friends with the milkman maybe even hurt his career there was a time when he was going to go on tour with them and he decided against it one of the milkmen gave him a record or a poster, and they signed it something like Satan Lives. <laughs> and maybe some older teammates didn't get the sarcasm of this. I think Jim, in some of his quotes, said, like, well, if I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Satan either. So, like, you have a guy who's kind of professing atheism or agnosticism, and baseball is a pretty conservative game, and some devoutly religious people play and watch baseball and he said that the that the publicity did not help him either with his teammates and so he later tried to downplay the connection with the with the band even though initially it gave him 15 minutes of fame and you know his straying from the norm was frowned upon both by ownership and management and teams and, and teammates but it doesn't seem like this different kind of personality rubbed sparky the wrong way too much did it and Sparky being an old school guy, you would have thought maybe he would frown on this this behavior. But it's it's not like Jim was being flashy. He was just kind of being quirky. Sparky Anderson said that he actually really liked Jim and the way that he played. He said he's been been in the business for a long time and seen a lot of stars. And people don't live like Jim lives. He has to struggle and you like to be around him. He doesn't have maybe a damning with faint praise quote. He doesn't have much ability, but he loves to play. <laughs> and, you know, so Sparky looked forward to seeing Jim every day. And that's a pretty, that's pretty high praise. And, and Jim ended up playing an important role for that AL East champ Tigers team in 1987. Yeah. He scored 24 runs on only 13 hits. <laughs> that is a historically notable number. It is the eighth highest run total for a player with fewer than 20 hits in a season. So some of the guys above him are people that we referenced in the Gary Thurman episode, including Gary Thurman and Herb Washington. Herb Washington in one season had 29 runs on zero hits. But a lot of good pinch runner names here. We have Stuffy Stewart and Sibby Sisty. <laughs> but a very high run to hit ratio for Jim. 24 runs on 13 hits and only... Seven walks as well. The end of the 1987 season is one where the Blue Jays lose seven straight to close out the season with the Tigers overtaking them. And Jim played a big role in a few of those games, including a late September game in which he scored the winning run in, a, in the 13th inning, scoring from second on a Kirk Gibson single, sliding headfirst uh, into home. And that win narrowed the gap between the teams to two and a half games. The next weekend, on the second to last game of the season, Jim did it again as a pinch runner, 
scoring the winning run on an Alan Trammell single in the 12th inning to beat the Blue Jays. And then the next day, the Tigers beat Toronto one nothing to win the division. And Jim, again, was on the field as a defensive replacement at the end of that final game of the season. That resulted in him running to the celebration at the mound and knocking Alan Trammell out when they jumped into each other. <laughs> so very exciting. Jim did not make the playoff roster, but he helped get them there. So that's, there's a lot to that. So 1988, was he able to keep it going? At least in his profile, he was uh, profiled in this MLB video that, <laughs> that you referenced earlier. And the whole thing is interesting because the first part of it talks about baseball cards. So if you're interested in what the baseball card industry was like in 1988, and then I think there's some hitting tips from Ted Williams in there, but we will have it pinpointed to the, the important part, the part that talks <laughs> just about Jim Whalewander. He played more games than he did in 87, 88 games. He hit 211 had 11 steals, no power. He had a 240 <laughs> slugging percentage, so Ooh. pretty pretty low. I think his, his uh, OPS was like 500. He ended up playing a little bit in the minors, four games in the minors that year, and he hit 455 in the minors, so they, they couldn't keep him down for long. 1989, he is in Toledo in AAA. He hit 225, and he never did make it back to Detroit. And I like this line here, David, that players in AAA would ask for his autograph because he'd played in the show. And he said, should I sign it? Good luck taking my job. <laughs> Just a sense of, humi of humor and humility that is very endearing. Yes. And I think you need that when you are a pinch hitter or pinch runner, when you're going to go multiple weeks without seeing any action on the field. And that ends his time with the Tigers organization in 1990s, a minor league player with the Yankees played well in AAA, again, stole 49 bases, so a lot of speed. He hit 250 and made it back to the pros, played nine games for the Yankees. I, I see here that when he was called up to the Yankees, he asked if number three was available because he would want to wear that. Unfortunately, that number is taken. It's been retired because that was Babe Ruth's number. So they gave him <laughs> number 63 instead, which is more suitable for a NFL center. <laughs> yeah, number number three taken by arguably the greatest player in baseball history. I don't know why but, they wouldn't give that to Jim Whalewander. <laughs> they should have done it. Should have done it for those nine games he played. 1991, he is back in the minors. Uh, 1992, he's playing AAA for the Rangers. Also played in Italy for a little while. He played for Mediolanum Milano, which may or may not have been owned by Silvio Berlusconi. This is one of those Wikipedia tidbits that I was unable to find. Matt, maybe with your Italian language skills, you can figure out if this is true. Mm -hmm. okay. They apparently won the Copa della Copa while Jim was there, which is a European baseball club competition. But he was injured and came back to the States. He said he enjoyed his time in Italy, but it was an odd time for an American to be in Italy. And he would get a lot of questions because this was around the time of the Rodney King trial. He would get asked questions and there'd be assumptions about Americans, about whether all Americans treat people like that. Yeah, we know that's probably the last time that any Americans have had to answer questions from people in other countries about are Americans really like that. So 1993, he signs with the Angels, and he does come back to the majors for 12 more games, uh, his last in the majors. He hit 
a buck 25. 1994, he was with the Marlins. And the quote from him was, I was playing in Edmonton's AAA Florida Marlins team and it was snowing out. I said, I'm done. I quit. This was in June. And so he was like, it's over. I've had that feeling, buddy. I, I feel you. He said he quit, but then he panicked two days later and called the Angels and they got him a, a job in the minors. But he said he was batting third and playing first base. And he, he just realized he was going further down the ladder and making less money. He got a call from a team in Thailand and he just decided, like, this is not worth it. There's no reason for me to keep taking pay cuts. So he hangs it up in 1994. How about his retirement? He went back to school. Uh, he was drafted after his junior year at Iowa State. So he went back to school and finished his degree in business at Arizona State and then went to UCLA and got an MBA. He went into business consulting for socially progressive businesses. I haven't really been able to find specifics on what he was doing. He also got married. And back when he was in Detroit, he said that he met a woman at St. Andrew's Hall. I don't know if you had heard of this club, but this is apparently a no. famous club in Detroit where all of the big bands played. He said he met this woman. He told her he worked at Tiger Stadium and she thought that he was a vendor. <laughs> he later showed her a baseball card and she accused him of having it made at an amusement park. <laughs> but they later got married, and I believe they're still married and have at least one child. They live in Virginia. And Jim is still unique. He responds to fan mail. I've found on some card forum sites that he will send back cards if they're sent to him, uh, signed. And he will include his own card art along with the signed card. Yeah, I'm checking this here. We've got a link that we'll put in the show notes of some of the autographed ones that he's done. This one example here is an 89 Tops card. Jim has signed the card that was sent to him and included his own recreation of that 89 Tops card that, is that like drawn by marker? Yeah, it looks like in pen, maybe. It's really like neat. marker and a, and a gel pen. I mean, it's really nice. It's actually really nicely done. Then on the second link here, some of these are almost like fractal images and one of them is his recreation of the 88 Tops card. This one guy first sent him a card to get signed. And Jim responded and sent him back this card art. And this guy just kept sending Jim things. So the next time he sent him like nine cards. And Jim signed them all and sent them back. So then he sent him 50 cards and the lyrics to the Dead Milkman song, Dean's Dream. And asked Jim... What I would like to do, I don't know if he presented this to him. He said he wanted Jim to write the lyrics to the song on each card, a little bit on each card, and sign the back of them. And then he was going to put it all in a frame. And Jim did it. Like, I think it took him a very long time to do it, but he did it. And it just seems like a very, both appreciating fans and fan quirkiness. Because it's not like that guy is going to take those and sell them. Yeah, He's just asking, I don't know, it's it's a very weird thing to ask and a very weird request to accept, but I love it. I'm just looking at it, David, and, you know, as we're closing the book on Jim here, this guy feels like exactly why we do this show. <laughs> this, this is just the kind of player that, as a kid, you would have seen the card, but the odds of you actually ever seeing him play a game of baseball are very, very slim. 
but it turns out like he's pretty awesome. He played 162 total games in his career with 242 at bats. He hit 215. He stole 15 bases. Unless you were watching that 87 or 88 Tigers team, probably didn't know much about Jim Whalewander, but surprisingly overrepresented in the news pages about the 87 Tigers, who have a totally interesting team. Like, there's so many stories to write about future Hall of Famers and a great team, and so much ink was spent on Jim Whalewander and the dead milkmen. It's funny that the media and the fans kind of bought into it and latched onto him as someone fun and as someone as an attractive personality when Major League Baseball kind of shunned that quirkiness. Yeah, and I think that we have shied away from like calling Jim weird or odd because it's such mm. a like a low bar in baseball to be considered weird. You don't really have to do much to be considered like different than the norm. So I think that this little bit of humanity from Jim is outstanding. A lot of the times that we talk about guys displaying odd behavior on this podcast, it's because they're on drugs. <laughs> and in baseball, yeah. you have guys who are quirky. You have like Mark Fidrich and, and people doing superstitious things that they believe help them do better versus Jim, who was just answering questions about like his daily life, which are pretty mundane. He was a 25-year-old guy who sits and listens to records. Like, what is weird for a baseball player? Is it listening to punk music? He's just slightly outside of the mainstream. He's not dangerous, just slightly nonconformist. Yeah, I would say that pretty much everything that we've described that, that Jim Whalewander was doing during his 20s, all of these things are things that either I was doing in my 20s or still do now or who have plenty of close friends are doing with in their 20s or would do now or that you would do in your 20s and do now like th none of this stuff is weird at all in the in 2021 to me at all and it does like it does kind of point back to the very mass culture that was predominant in the US during this time you had a very dominant monoculture of Americana, <laughs> of the mass medium, of the of the three channels, and baseball was the American pastime with mom and baseball and apple pie. And the wide variety of life in the United States and around the world just does not get captured. And what he's doing is not that nonconformist at all, but because it didn't play into the stereotype, our society just didn't know what to do with it, especially old timers. They had no idea. And it's, it's really fun to now look back and see, boy, this, this guy who is you know, such a weirdo because he liked punk music when he was in college in 1983. Like, duh. <laughs> then you add into it the other layer of guys who have been professional baseball players since they were 18 years old and didn't have maybe the opportunity to go to college to, or to whatever. And then you're in this insular world of baseball and you have to be hyper-focused on playing baseball that you don't, you have to kind of push out some of the other stuff. And we've talked about guys like Charlie Kerfeld. And Charlie Kerfeld was similarly like into Oingo Boingo and, and punk music and playing air guitar. But he was more of like the, the party dude 
I appreciate them both. But this is also a time when the Yankees had appearance policies and benched Don Mattingly for having his hair too long. I think we're now at a place where there's some more individuality in baseball. You get guys with walk-up songs, and some of them are funny. You have like guys playing Careless Whisper as their walk-up theme or the Baby Shark song. But generally, there's still a conformity in that. Like, I guess, Matt, I thought about this. Who's the weirdest professional athlete right now? How about uh, Zlatan? I think Zlatan is weird, but he's also weird in a different way. I think you have guys like Sean Doolittle who are like very into Star Mm. Wars. Or I remember R.A. Dickey a couple years ago. All of his bats would be named after mythical swords from fantasy novels. I think you're making the point that... Back then, it was weird to have any kind of interest that didn't fit a stereotype. And it was also very easy, if you did have interests that didn't fit a stereotype, to keep them secret and to not share them with other people easily. But in today's world, we're being taught and encouraged to share everything about what we do, about what we like. We're encouraged to find very diverse interests and to share those and to own those and claim those and to add them as part of our personal brands. Back in the 80s, no one had a personal brand. <laughs> like they had Their brand was supposed to be tied to the team. And so this individuality that came through, I think Charlie Kerfeld's a really good call because they're the same kind of thing where, you know, the older players on the team, you know, Nolan Ryan was looking at him as like, hey, kid, you know, shut up. You know, this is my team. You can imagine some of the older players on the Tigers, you know, not liking Jim Whalewater getting profiles written about him. You know, it should be about the team. Whereas today, you know, media people from the team are going to love any coverage they can get of their team, period, and would like to emphasize the differences. So maybe that's the actual nugget here is just the diversification of our society has led it to where individuals are more valued for the things that they like. They're encouraged to share more about it. And Jim Whalewander today as a, you know, as a Zoomer, you know, baseball player would be seen very differently than, you know, the baby boomer Gen X Jim Whalewander who is just on the leading edge of the, you know, punk rock uh, scene. Yeah. I th- so there's my, yeah. there's my meta analysis. <laughs> I, I think that that's well said. And it goes back to what we've talked about in the past with Tommy Lasorda or Cal Ripken Sr., where this point in time is a real tie between almost a more modern baseball of the 2000s into today, but back to the 1950s and 1960s with Sparky Anderson. And maybe Jim is a is a tie between, like, would he have had a really interesting Twitter account? I bet he would, and it might have gotten him in trouble. Charlie Kerfeld definitely would have gotten him in trouble. <laughs> I think Charlie Kerfeld for sure would have, would have been banned, banned on Twitter. Jim maybe just would have people might have just said like that guy's weird maybe even weird by today's standards excellent well overall the card by today's standards is fantastic so really enjoyed this episode so thank you thank you David thank you very much to Damon for suggesting him we love requests here so please please reach out if you have a favorite card you'd like us to cover and if you're wearing combat boots right now we would love to hear from you You can find us on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.